Thank you very much. I appreciate you guys putting up with me. We're bouncing all over the Gospel of John because we're preaching the whole Gospel today. So we'll be here a while. Um, seriously. But um, if you might have heard recently that the end is here. Um, now, uh, the rapture didn't happen yesterday, but unless we've all been left behind, uh, and I'm not aware of this, but uh, I'm pretty sure that the rapture didn't happen yesterday, but uh, th- that end isn't here, but this end is here. Today is uh, the last sun- can you believe this? The last Sunday that we're going to be in the Gospel of John for a little while. I'm sure we'll come back to it from time to time, but uh, we've wrapped up 16 months 55 messages in the Gospel of John, and uh, I have just truly loved being in the Gospel of John for this long, been long and truly blessed. But, you know, I, I would like to ask you a question today. Do you remember where you were on January 31st, 2010? You remember where you were on January 31st? You know, that was an important day, because, you know, remember, a lot of you remember important dates, like pretty much probably everybody who's old enough, remembers where they were on September 11th, 2001, right? You know where you were on that day. I remember where I was. I was in the car driving to the office and got there and not all was okay when I walked in the office, you know? And some of you remember where you were on January 28th, 1986. I don't know if you remember that date. That was the day that Space Shuttle Challenger exploded. I was in health class as a junior higher. You can imagine what that was like at the time. And so... uh, (laughs) That subject was being discussed, and there we go, the challenger blew up. Uh, some of you remember, a fewer amount of you are going to remember where you were on November 22nd, 1963. Some of you remember that day when JFK was assassinated, and you know where you were on that day. You can remember that moment. And I think my dad is probably the only one here who remembers December 7th, 1941, where they were when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. But... You know, these are important dates. We always remember these things. And so I bet a lot fewer of you remember where you were on January 31st, 2010. But I hope a lot of you were right here, hearing Denny Ogden launch us into this series of, uh, of the Gospel of John. And Denny did a complete overview uh, with an amazing outline that highlighted what we were going to be talking about in the Gospel of John. So I pretty much stole all of Denny's ideas for this wrap-up. And so uh, I want to thank you, Denny, for and give you credit for this message, because uh, it was great. As we work through the whole Gospel of John today, here's what I want you to remember. I, you need to, and, and hopefully you've seen this as we've been preaching through the Gospel of John over and over and over, that John as a writer loves themes. He took his time in writing this Gospel. He wove things themes in and out of the text. You see ideas popping up over and over and over again. For the last 16 months on the wall of the conference room at the office has been the entire Gospel of John printed out. And I went through at the beginning and I highlighted all these themes. And you can see it in one glance how John wove all these themes through his Gospel. And so John was a deep thinker. He spent his entire life putting this book together. And by the time John wrote this Gospel... It was probably the mid to late 80s, not, not 1980s. He didn't have teal and pink and big bangs. Uh, it was the, the actual 80s, right? Uh, 0080. And, uh, and somewhere in the 80s, he was towards the end of his life. John may have been as old as 70 or 80, um, which was really, really old in that time. Um, he may have been, uh, Jesus had probably been risen from the dead for about 50 or 60 years since he had risen and ascended into heaven. And John had been writing down his memories ever since, I think. 
And I believe that he took all those records and he wove them together into this meaningful, meaningful and thoughtful text. It wasn't as if John just sat down one day and goes, you know, I'm going to start writing everything I remember about Jesus. In fact, at the end, he told us, like Janet just read, if I, Janet just read, if I put down all these thoughts, he says, there wouldn't be enough ink in the world to write down, enough paper in the world to write down all this stuff. So John is highlighting for us what he wants us to know. He's putting together themes. And this work, I think, represents the pinnacle of John's achievement in his life. And so, as we look, and as we've talked about probably 55 times now, as we've been 50, in 55 messages, the book of the Gospel of John, if you look from a high level, the Gospel of John can be split into two halves. The book of signs, the book of glory. Chapters 1 through 12, the book of signs. Chapter 13 through 21, the book of glory. The book of signs focuses on the three years of Jesus' ministry, and John uses the miracles of Jesus to provide a framework for the greater message that Jesus is trying to communicate. Part one, signs. There's a lot of miracles, seven of them, in fact. Part two, the book of glory. Part two focuses on the last, chapters 13 through 21, focuses on the last week of Jesus' life. John is very intentional about trying to communicate the glory of Christ, the glory of his sacrifice and resurrection. So when we get to the end, John very clearly states his purpose. And we looked at this verse a couple of weeks ago. In John chapter 20, verse 31, and put that verse up there. John says, here, okay, here it is. He's, he's not hiding it from us, right? Here's why I did this. He says, but these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John wanted to make sure that the results for all those who read this book would be either one, they discover a faith in Jesus, or two, they develop and secure the faith that is already there. So today, I'm doing something different because I can. And, uh, and it's the last message of the series, and so I want to mix it up. And so I pulled in Thomas today, and Thomas and I are team preaching this today. And so there might be some, like, WWF tag teaming going on here as we pass off. And we're going to go back and forth, and we're going to work through the entire Gospel of John this morning. And what I want you to understand is that there's a big idea here. And this, this, this thing that John is trying to get our, our minds around, he's trying to get us to grasp is, that, is this idea of life. By immersing ourselves in the life, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus, it should not only give us to faith for tomorrow, the Gospel of John should make us believe in the person of Jesus that brings life for today and tomorrow. So we are going to start this whole deal this morning. Thomas and I wanted to, to highlight these major themes, and, and we've kind of broken it into two, two parts. Kind of like John did. Book one and book two, the book of signs, the book of glory. And one of the themes that I, I think really highlights well what John is trying to do is this theme of misunderstanding. There was a lot of misunderstanding circulating Jesus. John spends an awful lot of time in his gospel writing about how people misunderstood Jesus. It was very difficult for people in Jesus' day to grasp the true identity and mission of Jesus. They wanted to make Jesus into something that, that he wasn't. They wanted to say he was a dissenter or a great teacher or a troublemaker or an amazing healer. And all of these things had some element of truth to them. But Jesus was trying to make them aware of so much more. And Jesus is trying to let them know that he, in fact, is God on a mission. But people in Jesus' day just couldn't get that. 
And frankly, in many ways, for you and I living in the culture that we do, to doubt, it's easy for us to doubt the true mission and purpose of Jesus. And there are, there are plenty of people out there who say things, you know, like that make Jesus more palatable. Because, you know, as, if, as we've seen, especially in the first half of, of the Gospel of John, Jesus is one offensive dude. I mean, he just offends people left and right throughout those first 12 chapters so much that by the time we get to 13, they're ready to kill him. Actually, they were ready to kill him a lot before that. And so there's a lot of people today who like to make Jesus more palatable. And so what I want to do is I want Thomas and I to show you that Jesus, while often misunderstood, he still is the hope of the human race. And in book one of his gospel, John shows us how people misunderstood Jesus and how Jesus was up to so much more than what they thought he was. And the first thing I want you to see from this, and to highlight these, one of these themes, is the first thing I want you to see is that Jesus' death wasn't an accident. It was purposeful. How's that? Is that better? All right. So people want to... All right. Well, I'm just going to hold it now, and we'll just deal with it. All right. I hope it doesn't turn off. If not, I'll just yell really loud, because I can. Um, you know, it's easy for us, though, to get off track, and it would have been very easy for Jesus to get off track. I mean, we stand up here every single week, as part of Waukee Community Church, and we remind you what our mission is. Can anybody tell me what our mission is here at Waukee Community Church? To make disciples. That is correct. And it would have been very easy for Jesus to get off track as well. I mean, think about it. He had the power of God. Talk about a temptation. So it comes as no surprise that John and spent so much time pointing out to us the laser focus of Jesus. You know, sometimes I think we mistakenly think and believe that Jesus was killed because he was a threat. Because he was a um, threat to the religious leaders, a threat to the Roman authorities, going to cause problems. Maybe Rome thought he was getting to be too popular, so let's just get rid of this guy. He's a threat to Caesar. He's going to cause problems here in Palestine. I don't know. That's what we think. But I want you to understand that Jesus didn't die for any of those reasons. He didn't die because the world rejected him and that his teachings or anything like that, just like they did in the garden. No, let me state emphatically that Jesus Christ died on the cross because he came with a purpose, and that was to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus did not die, nor did he perform any of his miracles because he challenged the religious leaders and he wanted to change things. He died and he did every single miracle for the same reason that he came. And we read that in Luke 19.10 where we read, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's it. And that's why Jesus did not die a moment before his time. When Jesus said over and over and over and over and over again in the first part of John's gospel that his time had not yet come, 
it was a reminder to both the readers of the gospel, us, as well as the people in Jesus' day, that while Jesus was and still is a great teacher, a great prophet, a great healer, none of those reasons were the reason why he came. He came to redeem a fallen world. Don't misunderstand this. And certainly, friends, don't miss this. Anything that Jesus did on this earth while he was here was simply to point people to the fact that he was God, he is God, and that by being God, he is the only hope to redeem a fallen world. So we clearly have a lot of misunderstanding in the first half of the gospel. Um, and so in book, book one, John really talks about the extensive ministry of Jesus and how he walked in and amongst God's people, the Jews. He was set in a particular time, in a particular place. And for three years, what Jesus did is he walked around, he ministered, and he set out to correct their misunderstandings about him. And one of the ways he did this was performing signs and miracles. In book one, John told us of seven signs, seven signs that point to who Jesus really was. And the very first of these signs was turning water into wine. Now, this is the one I think most of us have heard. I mean, everyone in the world has heard of this one, right? I and mean, it's very popular in our culture. We, people write songs about it. Um, and I just find it fascinating that Jesus, the moment, just shortly after he calls the 12 disciples, the first thing he does is he takes them to a party. And I, I said this when I preached this message you know, a year and a half ago, that I love this picture that Jesus takes his disciples to a celebration. And because of the fact he takes him to the celebration, he finds himself in this predicament. His mom comes to him because they're at this wedding feast, and he, she says to him, son, um, we're out of wine. And I remember when we talked about this, then that there's all the cultural things about why this is bad and everything else. And, you know, maybe Jesus' mom came to him because it's like, um, this is your fault. You showed up with 12 of your buddies unannounced. Hello, Jesus. You should have brought some wine with you. Um, but regardless... Jesus answers his mom in a very peculiar way. If you remember, she says, they have no wine. And Jesus says to her in verse 4 of chapter 2, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Here we see Jesus reminding his mom that his purpose wasn't to make everything just better. I'm going to quote a little bit from the sermon I preached a year ago on this. We have to understand that Jesus didn't perform this miracle so that the bridegroom wouldn't be dishonored, although Jesus did save him from that fate. We also have to understand that it wasn't merely because Mary asked him to do it, although he certainly did want to honor his mother. We also have to understand that it wasn't because he is pro-marriage, he wants us to live lives full of joy, or even that he wants us to enjoy the best in life. All of these things, while true, are not why Jesus changed the water into wine. No, the reason that Jesus changed the water into wine we find in verse 11. In chapter 2, verse 11, we read, This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. I said it then, and I'll say it again. The purpose of every miracle that we're going to talk about today and every, the purpose of every miracle that was recorded in Scripture, and the purpose of every miracle that we still see today, 
Because, friends, God is still in the miracle business. The purpose of every single one of those miracles is to point us back to the miracle maker. And that's Jesus Christ. While Mary might have misunderstood the purpose, the disciples could not and did not miss the fact that this was no ordinary man who performed these miracles. These were clearly done by someone who was called of God. And the next of these signs, which Dave will talk about, proves this point. So the second miracle, the second sign that John highlights for us in the Gospel of John is this healing of the official son. Now, in John chapter 4, Jesus, um, John chapter 4 is probably best known for this conversation that Jesus had with this woman at the well. Jesus was in Jerusalem, which was in the south of the country. His home was Galilee, which was in the north of the country. And between Jerusalem and Galilee were the Samaritans. Jews did not like Samaritans. And Jesus goes there against his disciples' better judgment, I'm sure. And he has this conversation with this Samaritan woman who's got a checkered past, and, and uh, Jesus should not be talking to her. And in the process, Jesus teaches us so much about the kind of people that God loves. Mm-hmm. I mean, he just blows away our expectations. So he has this great conversation with this woman at the well, and then he goes up back home, and he gets back home, and uh, immediately when he's home, he runs into this important official. And Jesus is going to teach us something about faith here. Apparently this important official, his, his son is dying, and he wants Jesus to perform a miracle. Now, the crowd's already, like, they've already begun to like these miracles. I mean, who doesn't like a miracle, right? They, they already like these things, and, and Jesus' reputation has already gotten out, and, and this official certainly wants him to heal his son. And so these people are crowding around Jesus, waiting for more, and they were missing the whole point of Jesus. These signs were to point to the validity of Jesus' testimony, not just to put another year of life in our pocket or heal our aching toes. Or, Jesus certainly loved and had compassion on people. But what we see here going on was so much more than that. But the people aren't interested in faith. They just want their miracles. So this man begs Jesus to come with him. And Jesus says, I don't need to. Look at uh, chapter 4, verse 50, if you're following along in your text, because we're going to be all over this thing today. But Jesus told him, in verse, let's start in 48. Jesus says, unless you see miraculous signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you'll never believe. And the royal official said, kind of begging, sir, please just come down with me. Come before my, my son dies. And Jesus replied, you may go. Your son will live. Now watch what the man does, okay? Watch what he does. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. The man begins to walk back home. And, and as the story goes, these servants, can, they come running to him with the news that his boy has been healed. And watch what happens again in, in verse 53. The father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and all his household believed. One of the things I think that John is teaching us about through these seven signs and one of the things Jesus is teaching us is about faith. And, and we see faith on different levels and different aspects of faith and all of this throughout. But what you need to understand today, friends, is that every sign, every one of these seven signs points to Jesus. And the point of every miracle he did then and that he does today, the point of the word is that every sign continues to give 
It's this. It's so that we would believe in him. Jesus came not just to do great signs and wonders. Jesus came so that you and I might believe. If you're following along, flip over to chapter 5, and we see the next of the, the miracles. And again, it's a Sabbath day, which plays a big part in this miracle. And we also are at a, a pool uh, called Bethesda that has healing properties. And so we see this man who had been an invalid for 38 years. Now, for some of you, I know that that's been an invalid longer than you've been alive. For some of us, that's pretty close to how long we've been alive. And probably for this guy, it wasn't, if at all, much longer than he'd been alive. He'd probably been an invalid for as long as he could remember. I mean, imagine yourself that the only thing you want to do is to walk. That's it. And you're so close. So there's this pool here, and you're like, I, if I could just get in this pool, but I can't because I can't walk, and somebody always cuts in line in front of me. And this is where Jesus comes in. And he comes in, and he asks the man, do you want to be healed? And I love his, the man's response. It's not a, um, you know, yes, or, well, of course I do, Jesus. That's why I'm here. He starts to make excuses. In verse, six, in verse uh, 7, he says, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going down, another steps in, in front of me. It's, it's almost, he just makes excuses for, for what's going on. And Jesus sees past that, works past that situation, and just says, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he did that. Now, again, this is the Sabbath day. And as we know, on the Sabbath day, there is no work. So the religious officials come up, what are you doing carrying your bed? That's work. This is the Sabbath. You're supposed to rest. And he's like, I, I don't know, but the, the guy that just healed me said, pick up my bed and walk. So I don't know, religious leaders. I'm going to listen to him. I'm not going to listen to you. And of course, that you know, angers the religious leaders, and they come to Jesus. And we have this whole con- discourse about Jesus and the Sabbath and everything else, and in verse 17, it's very telling. Verse 17, we read, Jesus answered them and said, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why, John records, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but, he was, calling, but was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Make no mistake about it, friends. Jesus here is claiming to be God. In our culture today, we want so many people want to be able to say Jesus was, as we said, any number of things, but he certainly isn't God. There's even people who say, well, Jesus didn't even really claim to be God. I don't know. It seems to me it's pretty clear here. And don't miss this. It's not just enough that Jesus claimed to be God, but the purpose of this miracle and when he did it clearly shows that he is not just a good teacher, not merely a prophet, not just a wise sage. No, Jesus is claiming and is God. If we don't acknowledge Jesus as God, we miss Jesus. And that type of misunderstanding is exactly what John is warning us about. But more misunderstandings are coming, and Dave's going to tell us about how Jesus fed 5,000 people.
So the fourth sign that Jesus gives us, uh, that John gives us in his gospel, is the feeding of the 5,000. I'm sure you've heard of this. Jesus turns, uh, tur- turns a simple five loaves and two fish and makes them into a meal to feed uh, 5,000 men, plus all the women and children were there. So, I mean, kind of big deal. And in a culture where every day you woke up and you thought, I mean, we just, we don't really think when we wake up in the morning, where am I going to get my food for the day, right? We wake up in the morning and go, oh, my pantry's full, and that, you know, ham and beans has been in the back for a year, but uh, none of that sounds good. I'll go to McDonald's later on, right? We don't worry about it. In a culture where every day you woke up and you didn't know what you were going to eat for the day, you were going to have to figure out how to find food to eat, Jesus feeding 5,000 people is a huge deal. And it always cracks me up when uh, I read liberal commentators who, you know, they come to the gospel and their, their main purpose is to explain away miracles. And so I read one commentator that thought that this miracle, what really happened was that Jesus was standing in a cave and the disciples were hiding in the cave with extra (laughs) baskets of of bread and fish. And as Jesus blessed it, they would throw it out of the cave. And woo, miracle, right? I mean, mean, it just cracks me up. This is the whole point of what John is trying to do. He's trying to say, this is a sign that points to Jesus. And in a culture where people needed and wanted food, they would love to have, you know, the Star Trek food dispenser right there all the time. And that's what they think Jesus is going to be. So look what they do in chapter 6, verse 15. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to the mountain by himself. They wanted to go, oh, we like guys that feed us. We'll take him and we'll make him our king. But Jesus tells us in verse 35 of chapter 6 that he's got something entirely different in mind. Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I have told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. Jesus has in mind more than just, I'm going to feed your empty bellies. Jesus has in mind that he is the true sustenance of true life. We think we need food. What we really need is Jesus. In in and amongst all of that, uh, that discourse, we find something that almost appears like it's been stuck in. Because in and amongst this, we read about how Jesus walks on the water. And it just does kind of seems almost a little out of place here in chapter 6. It doesn't seem like John had... Um, a real purpose in putting this in here. Because first we read how he fed the 5,000, and then he walks on water, and then we read about how he explains why he fed the 5,000 and why that happened. But John here is very intentional, and I don't want us to miss this because it is in this intentionality that we get a huge message for us here at Waukee Community Church today. Now, this is the second time that we've dealt with rough waters, not in the John's gospel, but in the time that Jesus had been with the disciples. John does not record the first one, where we know where Jesus just calms the sea. But this is the second time where they're out on the boat, and you have to think that at this point the disciples are a little panicked because they're like, well, the last time we were here, Jesus calmed the sea for us, and now there is no Jesus with us. What are we going to do? But Jesus comes out and walks on the water, And as you can imagine, they kind of get freaked out. In in, uh, verse 19, it says, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. They were frightened. Makes sense. I'd kind of get freaked out too if I'm out in the middle of the ocean. 
uh, we're on a sea, and here comes this guy walking toward me, I'd be a little frightened myself. But why is this stuck here? Why is this story here for us, and what does it mean for us today at Waukee Community Church? Is that this whole chapter is about bread, and this, this is about the bread too. Actually, if you look back um, in verse 13, it says, So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. Twelve. Just happens to be the number of disciples, if my math is right. And here comes Jesus in the midst of a trial, trying time, a dangerous time, and in the midst of a dangerous circumstance, meeting the disciples right where they're at. Understand what the disciples were doing. They were working and they were serving. They were on mission. They were doing what they were supposed to be doing for the cause of Christ. And in the midst of that, they encountered trying and dangerous circumstances. And Jesus took care of them. Not only did he provide for them before a whole basket full of food prior to that, but when the, when the trying time came and the oceans were rough, Jesus came to them. As the disciples were serving Jesus, Jesus took care of their needs and Jesus took care of their situations. So let me say this loud and clear. When we serve Jesus, he takes care of us. And because he takes care of us, we can take what the world might think are crazy, radical, insane steps of obedience. Because we know Jesus is taking care of us. Because he cares for us and he will provide for us, even in the midst of a dangerous or trying circumstance. Okay, so it takes a few chapters, but we leave chapter 6 and we see the fifth miracle, the fifth sign. And we go all the way to chapter 9. And that's where John gives us the, the sixth sign. And uh, remember, all along these ways, John's chosen all six of these signs up to, to this point to show us something about the misunderstanding about Jesus. And he's correcting a misunderstanding. In, in John chapter 9, the, this blind man comes to Jesus, and the disciples use this man uh, as an opportunity, I guess, to ask Jesus this abstract theological question. With no regard to the suffering of the blind man, right? Look at verse, chapter 9, verse 1. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples, I mean, presumably this man's right there, right? You know, his disciples say, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? I mean, I just want to say, if I'm the blind, hello, I'm right here, you know. I can hear you talking about me. I'm blind, my ears work better, right? You know, I mean, like without any comprehension that this man, you know, they don't care. They just want to get their question answered. And so I love what Jesus answers. Basically, Jesus says this. Listen, uh, this isn't the fault of this man or his parents. Because they want to say, you know, who, who's fault? Clearly he sinned. Somebody sinned that he was born blind. Jesus says, it wasn't his fault. It wasn't his parents' fault. And he says, basically, Jesus turns to him and says, stop, and, stop using this guy as a pawn and get to work doing the work of the kingdom because that is how God is glorified. And you see, too many people think that Jesus is about abstract theological questions, you know? I mean, too, we, too many people are like, well, hey, let me just ask all my abstract theological questions and when I get those answered, then I'll feel better. And, 
It's not that theological questions are bad. Believe me, studying the Word of God and understanding it from cover to cover is very important. However, never at the expense of meeting people's needs. Live for God's glory. I think that's the point of the sixth sign is don't misunderstand Jesus. Don't misunderstand what he's about. Misunderstanding that he came for a purpose. He's on a mission, and he wants us to join us in that mission. And now we flip over to chapter 11, and we come to the last of the signs. And one, again, that we're all familiar with. Jesus' friend Lazarus is sick. Sick to the point of death. And Jesus, is, Jesus receives word about his friend's illness. And you would think that Jesus, being the kind, compassionate guy that we think that he is, would rush to his friend's side, right? We would doubly think that when we remember that Lazarus' sisters were Mary and Martha, two more of Jesus' good friends. So if we think about this, we have three very good friends of Jesus, one of which is dying. You would think that Jesus would rush off to heal him, right? We read in verse 4, he says, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And so Jesus takes his time. And by the time Jesus gets there, Lazarus is dead. In fact, we know because when Jesus tells him to roll the stone away, he'd been dead for at least three days, right? Because one of his sisters says, wait a minute, Jesus, time out. No, we don't want to roll the stone away just yet. It's going to stink. Okay, he's been dead for three days. Bad idea. And Jesus comes and he meets them where they're at to show us that this illness has a purpose and that even the death of Lazarus has a purpose. And that purpose is to show us that Jesus has complete and full control over the grave. And that by demonstrating this, Jesus reminds us that not only does he have the power to restore us to a right relationship to the Father, he has the power to overcome sin and the consequences of sin. In Romans 6.23, we read, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we know that the consequences when we sin is that we die. That's why people die in this world, because we still live in a fallen world. And Jesus is saying, look, I have control over this. Not even death is stronger than me. I love the interaction that Jesus has with Mary here. She confesses to him that she knows she'll see Lazarus again because of the resurrection. And I can only imagine the firm compassion and tenderness in Jesus' voice when he says what we read in verse 25. And Jesus says this, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. We know the rest of the story, right? Shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus weeps, Jesus wept. He's so moved by this friend's situation and his death that he cries because he is so saddened by the effects of sin. And then to show his power over the consequences of sin, Jesus shouts in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. So powerful was this sign that the religious authorities not only sought to kill Jesus after this, they also wanted to kill Lazarus as well. 
So let me ask you, do you fear death? Do you fear punishment? You don't need to. If you are a follower of Jesus, then you have the confidence that though you may die, you will live. The raising of Lazarus forcibly demonstrates to us the power that Jesus has over the grave. Because of this power, we don't need to live in fear of the grave. And that is when we develop that attitude of Paul when he says in Philippians that for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I think of that lyrics of the song we sang earlier. Oh, praise the one who paid my debt and hmm. raised his life up from the dead. John gives us seven signs pointing, correcting misunderstandings about Jesus. And, you know, and like Thomas first talked about, Jesus' death we saw was purposeful, not accidental. John corrects that misunderstanding. He then gives us the seven signs. And now in book one, John is going to show us that Jesus is more than just a healer. And he's even more than just the Messiah. The last thing that you need to see is that he's the I am. He's the I am. He was God. All right, so do you remember this concept? Because we haven't talked about it really a lot since we were in book one a while ago. But um, John is pretty crafty in the way that he's using language here. And one of the most important things that he got later on that Jesus was doing is that he was equating himself to be the Yahweh of old. As I highlighted way back when we were talking in book one, that if you remember at the burning bush when Moses, this would have been 1,400 years prior to Jesus, uh, when Moses was just getting called to this task of going and delivering the Israelites from Egypt, and you remember he goes up to this bush that's on fire, and he's curious because the bush won't go out, right? And, uh, and so he tr- comes, and of course, the bush speaks to him and totally freaks him out, I imagine, and he has to take off his shoes because he's standing on holy ground, and God tells him from the bush that you need to go talk to to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. And, and so uh, Moses is standing there and, and he's coming up with all kinds of excuses. And finally, you know, God doesn't really appreciate his excuses. And finally he says, okay, God, if I go and tell the, the Israelites aren't going to believe me, they're going to ask, what is this God's name? What's the name of this God? And this is the first time that God gives us his personal name. And that name is the name Yahweh. And it literally means to be. It means I am what I am, or I will be what I will be. It can go either way in Hebrew. I am what I am. God's name is a verb. Just love that. He picked a verb for a name. And so in the, in the Septuagint, 300 years before the, the birth of Jesus, about 300 years, um, the, the he, Hebrew language was kind of falling out of favor. and Most, most of the world now spoke Greek. And a lot of people, even Jews, didn't even speak Hebrew anymore. So some scholars got together 300 years before Jesus, and they said, we need to translate the, the Bible into Greek so people can read it. And so when they came to that part in Exodus, when Moses is at the bush and God says, my name is I am, I am who I am, when they get to that part, they said, uh, they, they translated this with the, the Greek word called ego, me. That's what it is, I am. That's very important here. When John talks about Jesus over and over again in the Gospel of John, he uses this very specific Greek phrase, ego, eimi. And what, and what John is saying and what Jesus is saying is, my, uh, my name, who I am, I am God. I am the God of 
Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am that God. And Jesus is saying that very clearly. This, this phrase, I am, is laced throughout the Gospel of John. Um, John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. John is telling us of the deity of Jesus right there in the beginning. John chapter 4, with the woman at the well, G, uh, the woman says, Hey, you know, someday we know that the Messiah is coming, and he's going to set everything right, and it's going to be great. And Jesus says, I am he. There it is again. Ego me. I am Yahweh. He's saying, I am not only am I the Messiah, I'm God. Chapter 6, verse 20, Jesus walks on the water like, John, uh, like Thomas was talking about. He comes out, and when the disciples are totally freaked out, he says, don't be afraid. Ego, me. It's me. I'm God. You don't have to be afraid. Chapter 8 is the pinnacle of, in my opinion, of the ego, me statements. When the Jews are trying to figure out what Jesus is talking about, and, uh, and they're trying to figure out, Jesus seemed to indicate that he was there when Abraham was talking about stuff. And, and they said, how do you know what's going on with Abraham? Because you're not yet 30 years old. How do you know what Abraham said? And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was, I am. It's bad grammar. Before Abraham was, ego me. Before Abraham was, I am, Yahweh. And to prove the point, the Jews got it, right? They got what he was saying because immediately they picked up stones and they tried to kill him right then and there. John is trying to highlight over and over. You think Jesus is just a good guy. You think Jesus is, is just a, maybe even the Messiah. But Jesus is God. I love these seven I am statements that, uh, that John highlights for us. Here we are, see him again. I am the bread of life in chapter 6. I am the light of the world in chapter 8. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. In all of these ways, Jesus is pointing to the fact that he's God. That he's God. And, and don't miss this because so many people want to make Jesus out today to be a good guy. They want to throw him into the pantheon of gods and they want to say, you take your way, Jesus. I'll take my way, nothingness. Uh, I was listening to the radio yesterday. They were making fun of Harold Camping, which, you know, I mean, okay, Harold Camping kind of deserves it. But you know, I kind of feel bad for the guy a little bit. But this guy on the radio said, you know what? Maybe the rapture happened and I missed it because I'm not good enough, right? So he said, you know, I don't know. Maybe I'm good enough. Maybe I'm not. He's missing the whole point of the gospel. The gospel is not that we're good enough or not good enough. The point is we're not good enough. Uh, uh, Jesus paid it all, that song. For nothing good have I whereby thy grace to come. I, I can't get it on my own. I need Jesus. Friends, we need God and Jesus is God. And John is making that clear. So if someone says to you, you know, if you ever get in this conversation with someone and you're like, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Like Thomas said, baloney. It's laced all through the Gospel of John over and over and over again. Jesus is God, and if God really did become one of us, then we ought to listen to him. That's the point. Don't misunderstand Jesus. Okay, that's book one. We're going to fly through book two in about seven minutes here, so uh, we're moving. Book two, the book of signs, now the book of glory. 
At the beginning of chapter 13, John makes this shift. He goes from discussing signs to pointing to glory. At the, up to this point, Jesus has been using miracles to straighten things out. Now he's going to focus on understanding what Jesus came to do. And so uh, I'm, we're going to use the same three things to talk about what you should understand about Jesus in, in book two. And so the first idea that I want Thomas to come back to and revisit is this idea again that not only should we not misunderstand Jesus' purpose, but we need to understand clearly what his purpose is. If in the first 12 chapters we see Jesus um, pointing us and by saying, my hour has not yet come, in the last half of the book, all we see is Jesus saying, my hour has come. The time is here. Jesus knew exactly why he came. I said it before, and it just bears repeating. This was no accident. Everything in the book of signs up to this point points us to this idea that Jesus came with a purpose. And the, everything that happened in the book of signs establishes the credibility for what is going to happen over the next 72 hours that John records. Indeed, Christ's time had come. Moreover, all of history had come to a climax. It is in this very moment that all of history is defined. Make no mistake about it. The plan from before the beginning was that Jesus would come and would die to redeem a fallen earth. I mentioned this on Good Friday, and I just love this quote from John Piper, that, where he says, Before there was any human sin to die for, God planned that his son be slain for sinners. Friends, this wasn't a culmination of three years of ministry. This wasn't a culmination of 33 years of a guy's life or even hundreds or thousands of years of planning. This was the culmination of a plan that was laid before God even spoke. As we sang earlier, before he even spoke into existence, the sun or the earth or the grass or the sea or anything. And as we worked our way through the Last Supper and through the arrest of Jesus, the betrayal of Peter, the mock trial by Pilate, and the scattering of the disciples, we found ourselves at the foot of the cross. And it's here that we read in John chapter 19. After this, Jesus, knowing that all, now all was finished, he said to fulfill scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Jesus could, with all confidence, go to the cross because he knew that this was the plan from the beginning. And just while it looked so very dark for those few disciples and those few followers, who hung around and were at the foot of the cross and watched that stone get rolled in front of the tomb. It was so dark that day, but we know that the great sign that was yet to come gives us our great hope, and that great sign was just around the corner. Okay, so if in book one, John used seven signs to correct misunderstandings, in book two, he used one sign, and he wanted to let us know a clear understanding of who Jesus was and his mission. 
And so in the book of glory, the second book, we focus on these last few days of Jesus' life. We have the upper room, Jesus' last words to his disciples, his trial, his death, his, re- his burial, and his resurrection. And everything pointed to this sign. John's testimonies after the resurrection are to this point that this was the great sign. As, John, as Thomas said, this is what Jesus came to do. This was the point. And there was one great sign. Jesus' death. Resurrection. That's it. That's our hope. So we come to the last point, and that simply is this, is that Jesus, his death, his resurrection, his life, everything points to the fact that you and I should have, have faith and find life in this I am, this God. Just like he did in book one, Jesus references Yahweh, I am, the ego in me. He references it in book two. And one of my favorite moments happens in John 18 during the rest of Jesus. If you look at John chapter 18, um, Jesus has, has been dis- is being betrayed and, uh, and he's getting ready to start this physical journey towards the cross and he's in the garden. And John's the only one who records this. So the soldiers are there and they're trying to figure, they want to make sure that it's clear that they don't arrest the wrong guy. They don't want some, you know, Jesus stand in to be there, right? You know, and get the wrong guy. And so, uh, and so they're very clear, and they've got these torches and lanterns, and it's got all these, this picture of a witch hunt, you know, in, in my mind, in the garden. And, and uh, they come up, and Jesus, in verse 4, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who do you want, right? And they say to him, Jesus of Nazareth. And look what Jesus replies. I am he. Yahweh. He's just God's very personal, precious name. John notes that Judas the traitor was standing there with them. And, G- and he says in verse 6, When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. I love it. Don't you love it? It's like at that very moment, all the godness of Jesus was right there. And they couldn't help. They just fell to the ground as an acknowledgement that what Jesus just said is right. Jesus says, you may be coming to take me and drag me to a a kangaroo court where I'm going to be crucified. But I want you to know that you're not taking me. I'm going. I'm going to the cross. The point of all this is so that you and I would believe in Jesus. And we come to chapter 20, verse 31. Again, this is the point, friends. John wrote all this so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, we may have life in his name. If you leave here today without an understanding, first of all, of your own sinfulness, if you, then we've blown it, right? If you leave here today without this understanding that you know, you're a sinner. Like, you, there's nothing you can poss- possibly do to be good enough for God. If you leave here without that understanding, we've blown it. Because the good news, the gospel's good news, is that God understood that we couldn't. So Jesus did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And that when he spread out his arms, and when his blood was shed, that was shed because you and I couldn't. He did for us 
what we couldn't do. Jesus came to give life. Jesus came to give life. And he didn't just come to get us into heaven. That's not what John says. Believe these things so you get into heaven. No, he came to give life today. It starts right now. We are living this life of forgiveness, this new life. We're living it today, right now. He came to give life. So we started in John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. We started with this idea that Jesus was there in the beginning. And now we come to the end. 2031. Where John highlights the whole purpose of the book. God became man. He came so that you and I might have life. If you believe today... Your life is different. It is. Like I preached on Easter Sunday, because of this death, because of this resurrection, everything is different now. We have life. So immersing ourselves in the life, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus should not only give us faith for tomorrow. The Gospel of John should make us believe in the person of Jesus that believing in Jesus brings us life tomorrow and today. That's my message for you. That was John's message for you. That's what we spent the last 16 months doing together. And so make this be fruitful in your life. Let your faith be strengthened. Live out because everything is different. And allow this message to permeate and change you forever. Let's pray. God, I want to thank you. I mean, I just come to the end and I'm so thankful. So thankful that you've blessed us as a church with 16 months in, this, in your Holy Scripture in the Gospel of John. And I thank you that we got to know John as a writer, and we got to see what your Spirit was doing. God, we just thank you over and abundantly. We say how good you are. And we ask you that you would give us the strength to live out this message, this faith that we have in Jesus. Lord, I pray that it would permeate and change and transform us. We pray this all in the holy and precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you.